You're listening to The Cultured Podcast, a weekly conversation hosted by me, Michelle Corey, that breaks down the barriers surrounding art, theater, travel, and more to serve a digestible dose of culture for all. Hello, my Cultured crew. We are back for another inspiring week of the Cultured Podcast, and we've got a special, special episode today. I have with me my version of the most interesting man in the world. It is Doc Lawrence, and he is a Southern gentleman like you wouldn't even know, packed with stories of a lifetime of the most interesting, fascinating things you've ever heard in your life. So I'm really excited to have Doc here. Not only is he a dear friend of mine, but he is also an absolutely skilled storyteller. So we're going to be talking about the art of storytelling today on the podcast. But first, before we do that, you know I like to cover what's inspiring me this week. And as I was talking to Doc a little bit earlier, we were talking about the beauty that is the change of the seasons and when nature itself tells us that it's time to turn a new leaf. And literally, when you're in certain parts of the country, the leaves turn colors. Some fall to the ground. And What inspires me so much about that is the fact that it's a reminder of impermanence and how nothing in life stays the same forever and how it's not meant to. And I think it's probably not a coincidence that at least in Atlanta, this is happens to be a time where the arts really come alive. And I think that that is really a beautiful uh, symphony that happens between nature and the way that we as humans respond to the nature changes around us. So, uh, you know, I want to inspire you now to take a look around you to appreciate it and understand that you're a part of that symphony. And uh, there's nothing more beautiful than that. All right, here we go. And without further ado, we're going to be talking to Mr. Doc Lawrence. Hi, Doc. Michelle, what a pleasure to be with you. Your enthusiasm is just reverberating all over the room. Well, thank you, Doc. Tell us first and foremost a little bit about your background as a storyteller. Well, I was raised by people who came from a long line of storytellers. That's a, uh, if there's anything that's Southern, it's that. A mm-hmm. um, good friend of mine who's been dead a long time, Marshall Frady, a whale of a journalist back during the Civil Rights era, and a Georgian, described the South as America's Ireland. You had the tragedy, the byproduct of war, uh, the byproducts of slavery, and this affinity for songwriting, singing, rhythm, dancing, literature, all of that is a byproduct of storytelling. These were poorer people in, in North America, and the storytelling could be done without needing, you don't need money to do that. What a fascinating connection between Ireland and southern U.S. It's so true. It is true. It's, I've, I, I use that line all the time, America's, uh, America's Ireland is the South. <laughs> and we've got all these contradictions down here. That makes it exciting if you understand the roots of those contradictions and how you overcome contradictions. You you embrace them. Yeah. Uh, the the embracers that I admire are Andrew Young, Jimmy Carter, uh, many, many, many others that, that uh, have mastered that art of accepting who they are, 
where they came from and what they can be. It's difficult here. I think it, the dichotomies of the South and how it lives within this juxtaposition of itself it really throws a lot of people off. So it, that's why I think the people you just mentioned are also the change makers and the people who live on through everlasting legacy. And it's because they're able to master something that's really difficult for the rest of the people. And one thing that I always like to emphasize is that they have mastered the art of wisdom and of, of acceptance. They don't force themselves on anybody. They listen to you. And if you want an opinion from you, you'll get it. It's straightforward. It may not always be what you want to hear, but it'll be from their soul, from their innards. It will be something that they mean from the heart. Right. And you can take it to, in other words, you can trust them. Yeah, that's beautiful. Now, I don't mean you can always trust me, but you, you can trust that. Andrew Young and Jimmy <laughs> Carter. Okay, so <laughs> let's go back to the roots of it all and you being a storyteller. Growing up in the South, where do you think you learned the art of storytelling? You can read uh, my old classmate from Decatur, Roy Blunt Jr.'s book, Save Room for Pie, or any of his other books, and you'll see nothing in there but stories from childhood. Mm. We ate together at night and on the weekends. And we always shared stories. It was just part of having fried chicken or fried catfish or banana pudding. Yeah. It was a time to tell stories. Yeah. There were no radios playing. There was no television playing. And you didn't dare read a paper uh, when my mother was sitting at the table. You, you gave her your full attention. But she was attentive. Hmm. And she wanted to know what you were doing. And they would share stories about uh, their parents. their growing up. They were products of the Depression and later of World War II. They came from poverty, but they were rich people in uh, what they knew, what they understood, what they believed. So I was blessed with that, as millions of other Southerners are. Uh, that's the same legacy that William Faulkner had, Eudora Welty had, the tons of great authors, actors, actresses that come from the South. They have the same background. So what do you think makes for a good story? Well, the Greeks said it was a beginning, middle, and an end. <laughs> uh, I'm not so sure that I'm capable. It might never end. They just go on and on and on. And That's you have what to, I'm here for. Yeah, yeah. You have, to, you have to cut me off, pull me off the stage. Uh, I think uh, absorbing the uh, delights, the ethos, the joy, the tragedy that others give you giving them your undivided attention. You don't have to tell them you agree with them or disagree with them. Listen to them. Mm -hmm. And it affects you. It affects you. No matter who they are, children are just about as interesting as the elders are. Oh, absolutely. And if you listen to them, and if you listen to them, you've got a friend. And I think you synthesize it intellectually. Uh, it's there. Uh, if you're really good at it, you kind of make it your own. Mm -hmm. You take somebody else's story and you make it your story. Mark Twain said you needed to master the art of lying. He said, that's good storytelling. You tell a lie better than anybody else can, and you got to always practice it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what's one of those stories that you've made your own? <laughs> oh, well, all of them are. Don't dare, don't dare believe anything I've ever written or said. None of it's true, I promise you. Uh, no, my favorite stories, uh, based on personal experience, would be my times with the Reverend Howard Fenster, the uh, incredibly gifted, decent folk artist from Somerville, Georgia. Uh, uh, my times on Colonia Farm uh, outside of America's this commune of Christians 
who resisted uh, racial segregation and racism, much to their suffering during the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And they're there today, and they're flourishing. That's a place I know that I can go to and find peace. There's no secret at all in this state that they're the ones that founded Habitat for Humanity. I got news for the state of Georgia. That wasn't founded here in Atlanta. It was founded in America's Georgia on Colonia Farm by women and children who had been persecuted, who had suffered. And they dedicated themselves to doing what I'm, I'm a, what you'd call a, a wavering Christian. But as I re- read the New Testament, they did exactly, and they do exactly what Jesus said you should do. Mm. They cared for the least of these, and they still do that. Th- those are the things that inspire me the most. But I'd be remiss if I said I'm not inspired by the, the winemakers, those that cook, uh, those that clean up, uh, those that heal, those that comfort. I got a soft spot in my heart as well. I've always been uh, politically way out in left field, but that's just the environment I was raised in. It's hard to believe that maybe Atlanta and Decatur would be that way, but Atlanta and Decatur has been that way, and it still is. Right. That's why I would. Li- that's why I live here. I'm comfortable. You were raised in Decatur? Yes, I was. Mm-hmm. Born and raised? Well, I was born in Atlanta. Ah. From where we are right this second, you could go around the corner for a few blocks, and I can take you to the, the, the brick building where I was born on a cold morning in February a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> you have told me a good few stories about your encounters with a celebrity doesn't even do them justice, icons, uh, Elvis Presley, Martin Luther King Jr., mm-hmm. Ella Fitzgerald. These are pretty great people you mentioned, by mm-hmm. the way. When I was a kid, uh, I saved up money and I took the streetcar from Decatur to the Fox Theater to see Elvis. He had three shows in one day at the Fox Theater. I went into the Georgian Terrace first. They had an old radio station there I listened to. And I saw him standing, speaking with this lovely, lovely girl that wasn't too much older than me. And uh, he saw me- How old were you? 12. He saw me staring at him and he he laughed and said, come over here. He introduced himself. (laughs) And I don't know that I ever introduced myself or not. I don't think I did. And his- girlfriend, as it turned out, was a lady named Carol Joyner. She turned out to be more famous than he was at that time. She had written the number one song in popular music and country music called Young Love. Hmm. And uh, it still sells in the millions to this day. What? And, uh, uh, gee, I mean, that's a moment you never forget. Uh, And I actually saw him from a distance earlier when I was much younger, at the old Atlanta uh, sports arena, it's an outdoor amphitheater. They, they had wrestling matches there. <laughs> and I saw Elvis Presley and the Blue Moon Boys when I was probably nine years old. And there was a country music forum on Saturday nights. And uh, my next-door neighbor was a studio musician, took me out uh, with his wife to see this country and western show. But he knew they had one act that really wasn't pure country and western. And I saw this kid climb through the ropes carrying a guitar, and these two kind of country guys, one with a stand-up bass, the other one with an electric guitar with a little small amplifier, plug them in. My life was never the same. I was, I was my first introduction to the real sin of rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> Your first introduction to rock and roll was live watching Elvis it Presley. It was. It was. What, do you remember what songs he sang? That's All Right, Mama. 
my favorite has always been the naughty one, Baby Let's Play House. <laughs> for all those listening, you've got to go hear that Sun Records. Can you sing it for us? You may go to college, you may go to school, you may drive a big Cadillac, but don't you be nobody's fool. Oh, baby, come back, baby, come. Come back, baby, I want to play house with you. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Doc Lawrence. <laughs> So I think you're just a natural orator, right? You're a natural storyteller. Like you said, it takes equal parts uh, listening intently and, and having a genuine interest in what someone is saying, truly involving yourself in whatever they're saying. But then also the intellect to be able to extract the story from whatever they've said, because a lot of us don't tell a story in the most compelling way when we're just off the cuff telling a story. But then on top of that, I think there's a innate gift for both of those things, combining them. When you meet a person and when you're listening to their story, what what does your mind look like? How is your mind working in that moment? Are you constantly asking questions about that moment? Do you feel a sense of inextinguishable curiosity? I think what happens automatically, you begin relating what you're listening to, to things that you've already heard mm. or questions that were raised to you some other way. And uh, I don't take notes as a rule. I, I, don't, I don't need to. The things that they anybody tells you, they, it has its profound parts. Uh, it's going to be there. And the, what, what they feel is sometimes more important than what they actually say, the emotions that are in it. I interviewed a lady one time who had just lost her husband. And you don't take notes with that. You listen to her grief and how lonely she is and how afraid she is. And you give her enough time and she tells you how much she loved him. And then I, I try to put that in words, but I can only do it through empathy. Mm -hmm. uh, you got to walk in her shoes. You got to experience that same loneliness, that emptiness that she feels. That comes easy if you give the subject a chance. They got to be themselves. Interviewing like you, like you're cross-examining me right now. It's hard for me to be myself. <laughs> I'm under the constant strain, being bombarded with these hostile questions, these gotcha questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know me, gotcha Michelle is what they call I'm me on the street. Telling you, the menace. <laughs> Beware, politicians. Don't get on this lady's show. <laughs> no, get on my show. Bring your lawyer. <laughs> well, this isn't a show for politicians, so ha, gotcha. Good, good for you. <laughs> okay, so now for those who maybe aren't born with the innate talent, what are some tips that you can give people to become better storytellers? The one I would give most of my friends on social networks is don't talk so much about yourself. Mm. Talk about other people. Uh, they're all around you. Every person has a great story daily. Absolutely. Their life is a great story. It's just, their life is just as interesting as the life of any of the Kennedy family or the Carters. Just give them a chance. Uh, their children, they love them just as much as I love mine. Write about them. There's a hero everywhere. Joseph Campbell's book, A Hero with a Thousand Faces. They're, it's like the constellations that fill the universe. Every person is different. Every person has a great story. It has nothing to do with their education, their fame, their fortune. It's their humanity. And it's kind of easy. They could be the funniest comedians on earth. Some of the best people I've ever met in my life that had me on the floor laughing were what most people would say were ordinary folks. They excelled without any effort in comedy. The chaos of, chaos of their life each day 
was hilarious. They held nothing back. Nothing was edited. And that's so refreshing. And I think that's what makes a Margaret Mitchell. I think that's what, what makes the uh, wonderful lady that lived here in Atlanta for many years, Catherine Strockett, that wrote The Help. She picked up on that. She told a story from her childhood. The magic of the everyday. Exactly, exactly. That forgotten maid, that forgotten staff. And they loved and cried and ached and were hungry and longed for better things, too. But they also had light moments. And they could reach across racial uh, barriers with love. Gosh, could they? That's fascinating. So you talked about some of the topics that enthrall you are food and wine. That's, that's all I like now. At my age, uh, just give me lots of food, lots of wine, and leave me. put me in a room and lock it. Okay, duly noted. <laughs> so what is it about food and wine that makes for a good story? We'll go back to uh, the uh, New Testament. Uh, that's what was Jesus of Nazareth doing in his last moments. They sat at the table and they enjoyed food and wine. Wine has antecedents 6,000 years back that's much deeper than Coca-Cola or even <laughs> beer. Uh, it's always had a prominent place with entertainment, hospitality, as a beverage for celebratory reasons, and it's wholesome. It's good for you. It makes you feel good. Mm-hmm. It, makes, it helps you digest food, and you can even uh, maybe find a, a, a path to heaven when you drink it. I don't know. <laughs> And, I sure have. And with, with food, doesn't everybody like sitting down at a dinner table and enjoying the ritual of friendship? That's what dining together is. It's a, it's a, it's a ritual. I think you and I have in common that we look for the deeper human story yeah. rather than the superficial. Anything that's surface, that's obvious, isn't going to make for a compelling story. I'm ghostwriting a book right now for a friend, and it's really interesting because she wrote 165 pages of this manuscript that's very straightforward journalistic, and I had to read it like I was Freud, right? And picking out all of these like subconscious motivations and and really reading into the word choices she used. Because if I were to go with the superficial story, it wouldn't speak to the universality of her story. And I wouldn't really be able to write a compelling manuscript. And so that kind of speaks to the idea of not just taking what's given to you on the surface, but rather digging deeper, whether it's food, which it sounds like you focus more on the ritual and the culture of food rather than, you know, the tempura and how it was fried, or whether it's a person that seems ordinary, but once you dig under the surface, you start realizing there's no such thing really as ordinary. The greatest discoveries uh, that have come my way, and there have been a lot of them, have been those people or those events that I had no expectations. No one had tried to brainwash me. I, I ran into a person or a place as is, and I left later a tr- transformed. Mm. I was a better person. I had more knowledge than I had before. It was A lot of times it was humbling. Uh, when I was a kid, there was a place on Ponce uh, called the Blue Lantern. It was the honky-tonk. The old building's still there across from Green's Liquor Store. There's a honky-tonk in Atlanta? We had them everywhere. (laughs) Well, we had honky-tonk roll on on Ponce. So even though I was well underage, I put my father's hat on and and, uh, his jacket, his blazer. (laughs) Of course you did. And ride the trolley with some friends of mine. We'd get in the Blue Lantern. But Blind Willie McTell played in the parking lot there. And uh, I'd go there, and you'd put 25 cents or 50 cents in his tin cup. 
<laughs> and he would play Statesboro Blues, Wabash Cannonball. He wrote those things. Oh, my God. I'm not sure they'd be at Allman Brothers without Willie McTell. Right. And I adored him. I worshiped the ground that man walked on. He told me he invented a 12-string guitar. Maybe you wouldn't have had the birds without him. My God. Maybe you wouldn't have had Tom Petty without him. Uh, when it rained, they wouldn't let Willie play inside. He had to go home. He lived on the streets. My God. What? When they found, when they found him, he was dead on a cold morning somewhere around the Claremont Hotel. But Willie McTell's story came to me uh, before his music got its rightful place on the charts and in music history. Music has been a huge part of your life. Still is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, tell us about when you had dinner with Ella. Uh, that was at Florida State. Mm -hmm. And uh, my... I, I hopped around schools, but I did get a degree from FSU. And uh, years later, uh, their school of music, which is renowned, mm -hmm. they awarded a honorary doctor to Ella Fitzgerald. I was invited to come down there. As they probably invited everybody, but I, I took advantage of it. And I got to sit by her at the awards dinner. And I, it was like sitting next to, to Venus yeah. or to Queen Elizabeth. Uh, and I'd rather be with Ella any day than them. I, I agree. She's and one of my she idols. she was a sweetheart, such a love. And I was just gushing over how much I loved her songs. And she would quiz me. So, well, tell me <laughs> some of your favorites. Well, I did know them. That's I did so know Ella. them. I could do it. She did the Cole Porter songbook. I have it to this day. She asked me, tell me, young man, what was my first hit you enjoyed? And I said, it was Honeysuckle Rose. We got to be friends. It, well, that's, it was her first one. Mm -hmm. Don't that's you dare beautiful. ask me to sing that thing, Michelle. Sing it. Honeysuckle Rose, Honeysuckle Rose. Ella and I probably couldn't harmonize with that. You probably could. She could harmonize with Louis. Yes, she could. That's right. And she would make fun of him, too. Make a little scat. Okay, so as our last few minutes together, I would like to end with what, in my opinion, is one of the most amazing stories that you have. Uh, which is how you met for the first time Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Under the most adverse circumstances <laughs> imaginable. The meetings with Elvis and Ella were perfect. Oh, beautiful. Uh, again, I was uh, a long ways from home. I was a freshman uh, at Florida State University in Tallahassee, Florida, just south of the state line, mm -hmm. Georgia state line. And I was going home for the holidays. I didn't have a car. And I hitchhiked from Tallahassee, wanting to go up uh, U.S. 19 to Atlanta. As I got into Albany, Georgia, a trucker, a uh, lumber truck, took me into Albany and let me out on a slappy boulevard. And the rain was incredible. And this squad car pulls up with these two old pot-bellied rednecks with cowboy hats on. And I'm scared to death. I am not from there, and I love Albany. Don't get me wrong; it's no reflection on them. Yeah, but uh, they. And you're 18 at the time. I was 17, 17. at the time. Yeah, I better school. Or I, I couldn't wait to get away from home, <laughs> and my parents couldn't wait to get me out of the house. Uh, anyway, they took me to jail. They thought I was a freedom rider. I didn't even know what a freedom rider was, <laughs> and I found out through their talking when they called me boy several times. Boy, you be careful coming down here. Boy, you'll get in a heap of trouble. And I, I was terrified. They put me in a, a jail cell. I guess I was loitering or a vagrant. And in that room, I, I didn't know who any of them were. I later found out it was Andrew Young, 
Reverend Jackson, John Lewis, Ralph David Abernathy, and Dr. King. And Dr. King was sitting on, the only place you could sit was a toilet, and he was sitting on it, and uh, he was freezing. And I had a a jacket on that my mother had given me, uh, a little zip-up jacket, that's all, and I put it around him. And he thanked me, and uh, my father got me out of jail quickly. He knew a powerful person down in Albany that got me right out, and I said goodbye to him. And I later found out that Reverend Clarence Jordan, the founder of Cotonia Farms up the road, is the one that bailed out the rest of them. Oh, my God. And uh, years later, when Dr. King had won the Nobel Prize, Mayor Allen of Atlanta and the, the white power structure of Atlanta came together, and they did the right thing at the height, uh, as I recall, it was the height on Peachtree. They had the uh, dinner honoring Dr. King. I was able to save money and buy tickets, and I went through the reception line. And this was a legendary dinner that, I mean, if you It broke every racial live, Yes, and, and barrier. it was when Dr. King won the Nobel Peace Prize. That's correct. And Atlanta didn't want to celebrate it. They didn't want to have a party that was integrated. Oh, that's and true. so Woodruff, Robert Woodruff, who was the owner, of, who was the CEO of Coca-Cola, right. was the one who put his foot down and he said, we're either going to have a, a an integrated dinner that celebrates King or you can say goodbye to Coca-Cola. Well, that would be, if they said that today, Coca-Cola <laughs> could get anything Absolutely. here. Absolutely. That's, that's my recollection. And anyway, going through the re- reception line. King recognized me and started laughing, and he introduced me to his wife. He said, this is the skinny little boy that occupied for a few brief moments <laughs> my jail cell in Albany, Georgia. And I, I've treasured that moment. Oh I God. laughed so much. I felt good all over. But everything that Dr. King stood for to me was in that room, that mixture of Atlanta. Atlanta transformed itself that night. It didn't become a part of the New South. It was and is the New South. Yes. We have a better city than Birmingham. Sorry, Birmingham. <laughs> we have a better city than most any other Such place a in the South. Rouser, man. But we do. Yeah. And it was that leadership. Uh, it was corporate responsibility. Uh, yes. It was the, the religious community came together with the academic community, the business community, and said, enough is enough. Let's grow up. Maybe we're still getting there, but we come a long ways. Thank you for sharing that with us. It's Every time I hear that story, I get the chills. I was on a um, media trip with the state of Georgia a few years ago with my friends from California, and I we went to the Civil Rights Museum in Albany. Mm-hmm. And they put me on the spot and said, come on now, it's time to prove that stuff. And they had the jail cell in the museum. No. Now, it could have been the, a facsimile or it could have been that one. But they had the New York Times article with King being arrested with with all of his lieutenants in that on that very single day. And I, I held that up and said, see, I was in there. I was in there. I never read this article in my entire life. I never read a New York Times till I was about 20 years old. That is amazing. Yeah, it's there right now. Check it out, everybody. Okay, last question is, what is one story that you have in your back pocket that you absolutely need to tell? A few years back, oh, gee, let's be honest, 20 years ago, mm-hmm. I went over to uh, the Black Warrior River, a park beside the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa for the Alabama Folk Art Show they call Kentuck. Uh, very uh, well established. And uh, I like collecting self-taught art, visionary art. And I saw this 
tiny man sitting down on some red clay. It was hot as a blazes that day. And this long line of people holding paintings and objects. And he was talking to him, and I could see him signing things. And I thought, well, why not? Mm-hmm. And I stood in line, and they, people in line warned me, said, you better buy something first. And I bought a little painting of an angel. And I got to him, and he was sitting on the ground. I got on the ground. I was about to introduce myself and Reverend Howard Finster, unknown to me at the time. He said, uh, son, when you go home to Atlanta today, uh, you don't have to go back with a broken heart anymore. God loves you, and God will be with you. Well, he didn't know I was from Atlanta, and uh, it was so intimate, and he was right. I, I had a tragedy that had occurred in my life, and it was a horrible thing for me to carry, and he knew it. And we talked, and with that was the beginning of a wonderful friendship. Reverend Finster, next to Dr. King, was the greatest man I ever met in my entire life. He had a real impact on me. He was the real deal. This man came off of a spaceship somewhere. He had no education. The world to him was one. He embodied that. Everything was the same. There were no black people. There were no white people, no Asians, and no anyone. We were one in God's universe. There, he would have a festival called Fensterfest each spring, and I'd hear bluegrass music alongside rap music from Atlanta. <laughs> it was the same to Reverend Fenster. Yeah. He was the greatest inspiration uh, outside of Dr. King. But they were a lot alike. Dr. King saw the concept of one, too. That's beautiful. It was, it was easy to follow either one of them because you trusted them. They were part of your own humanity. The heart picks up on that quickly, I think. Children certainly do. Absolutely. Pets do, too. Pure spirits, in other yes, words. It, yes, it is. Yes, it is. But uh, those, those are the two that I miss the most. And uh, uh, Reverend Finster was just a delight, a mm. joy. How do you think you want to tell his story? Uh, it's been told a lot, and I, some of it was told quite well. Uh, he was on the Johnny Carson show. He was. Uh, oh, wow. REM did an album dedicated to him. What? Uh, the Talking Heads did as well. Oh. Uh, his, I've written cover stories about uh, uh, Howard Finster. He's been in uh, the B- British Museum, uh, he's in the Smithsonian. Uh, the story that I would tell would be the everlasting legacy of Howard Fenster. Uh, when you honor Howard Fenster, Dr. King, and people like Reverend Clarence Jordan at Colonia Farms, you're honoring the earth, you're honoring the future. Thank you so much, Doc. This was honestly such a delight, as always. Well, you're a delight, and you're a bright, shining star in my little world, Michelle. you can see why I love Doc so much and why I just had to bring him on the Cultured Podcast to share some of his stories and storytelling techniques. And if you want to learn a little bit more about Doc, where can they find you? Uh, They can find me on Facebook, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, and I have a blog, three or four posts a week. It's downsouthtoday.blogspot or email me, doclawrence at mindspring.com. I'm around, always available, (laughs) and it won't cost you a cent. All right, everyone, thank you so much for your giving me your ears, your attention, and your hearts. And as always, keep it classy, keep it curious, keep it cultured. I'm Michelle Corey. Sean Powers is our producer. 
David Markowitz is our executive producer. The Cultured Podcast is a production of Zero Mile Media, made with love in Atlanta. You can listen to The Cultured Podcast on culturedpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, and anywhere podcasts are found. Bye.